0: Well, let us give our attention to God's word again from Deuteronomy 11. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your feet treads shall be yours, Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread, as he promised you. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse If you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask for help. Lord God of heaven and earth, we ask that you turn our hearts towards you. Would you soften us? May there not be in any of us an unbelieving heart leading us to fall away from the living God, you being the source of all life, goodness, joy, and satisfaction. Our hearts truly are restless until they find rest in you. Would you glorify yourself through the preaching of your word that we might find ultimate satisfaction in the river of living waters. We pray in the name of our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, amen well in chapters 9 through 11 which we will cover today moses continues to exhort and encourage the people of israel as to what life should look like in the land that they are going over to possess this continues in this sermon that we saw last week when pastor thomas taught from 6 through 8 and in 6 through 8 he was giving them some very relevant warnings to us so for them he said, you know, when you get into the land, you're going to experience prosperity, and you better not forget the God who has provided that. Then he also says, you being a chosen nation out of all the other nations, don't start to think that you're greater than other people, that you are the greatest nation. No, you are the least. He chose you because he loved you. That was meant to deflate their pride. And then, of course, after they are destroying these large, great armies and fortified cities, they're going to be tempted to say, it's by my power that I've done this. And he says, no, no, you need to know very clearly that this is God working in the midst of you. And that's why Moses isn't, at this point in time, giving them a large training regiment for how to go to battle. He's training them for godliness, because that's what matters. To trust in the Lord and to follow his commandments. And so we continue that in through 9 through 11. He's going to, once again, puncture pride. He's going to show who ultimately is the sovereign king who is gracious. And he's going to make very plain, if you all are going to be obedient and stay in this land, something needs to happen to your heart. Before you can be covenantally faithful and keep the commandments, your heart must be circumcised. That's at the center of our passage today, so we'll make up the big idea. Heart circumcision must precede covenant faithfulness. I've structured the sermon according to the layout of these chapters, so we're going to see four essentials for covenant faithfulness. Know your heart, know your mediator, know your requirements, and know your covenant. First, know your heart. To lay the groundwork of what Moses is going to do here, he wants to reiterate the absolute impossibility of them being successful in going up against these giants, about these fortified cities. And so he's going to he's going to lay the groundwork. Here we here we go. Verse one. Here, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go into dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great, fortified up to heaven, and a great. A people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, Who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. This is the great and awesome God who's a consuming fire who will judge the nations. But if you get the idea, if that's not clear enough, and you might think that you had something to do with this, or, or God has chosen you because you're so great and so righteous. Verse 4, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. It's my righteousness. This is a form of spiritual smugness. It's a self-righteousness. I'm greater. God's judging them because I'm so much better than them. No. God makes it clear as to why he's doing it. Look at verse 4. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because you're so great. The time is up for these nations. They are wicked and evil. Verse 5. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord God is driving them out before you. And he gives a second reason. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It's the faithfulness of God to his promises by which you are coming in. Why? Because you all are wicked too. You have stubborn, sinful hearts. Verse 6. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Three times he says, you're not righteous and you're a stubborn. This is not the gospel of self-esteem where he thinks he needs to build them up. He's tearing them down. He's removing all grounds of boasting. That's a principle found throughout all the scriptures. Now, it's almost as if he's anticipating Israel's inner lawyer that's going to come up and be like, wait, wait, wait a second, Moses. And so he's he's going to go through and be like, let me remind you, do not forget that you aren't righteous. Verse 7, remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. He wants them to remember their past failures. Not so that they will have continual guilt and feel this sense of despair, but so that they would understand the grace and mercy of God. They are going to possess the land because God has continued to be faithful and will keep them. So, he continues. chapter seven, uh, Verse 7, all the way to 10 through 11, he gives the history which we don't have to spend a lot of time on because we're very familiar with this right now. Verse 8, even at Oreb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. Oreb, that's Mount, Mount Sinai. After he had demonstrated his amazing power through these manifestations of fire and lightning and thunder, and he spoke to them, then they went and made a golden calf. Verse 11, at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me two tablets of stone for the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, arise, go down quickly from here. For your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a metal image. They broke the covenant. Moses throws down the covenant, tablets breaking them as a sign. But there's more. Verse 22 At Tabra also, and at Massa, and at Kilbroth Kadava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up, take possession of the land, that's when they were at the border. Then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God, did not believe him, obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Now, what's interesting about this is that he's, he's reiterating pretty much the first generation. ...and their failings. But he's talking to the second generation. There is a corporate solidarity with the people of Israel... ...and not to mention that these second generation have shown... ...in other instances that same sort of hard-heartedness, that stubbornness. So what he's basically doing is just conveying to them... ...hey, you're not righteous. Okay, That is actually the problem of the human heart. Jeremiah 17.9 says, "...the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick... Who can understand it? That's why Paul in Romans 3.10 and following says there is none good, none who is righteous. And then he goes on to convey a gospel by which righteousness might come to you. So he's trying to flatten this out. It's not because you're righteous that you're experiencing the land. Well, what about the new covenant people of God? Would Moses say the same thing to us? Think of the promised land as a picture of heaven, okay? Okay. Them going to possess it is like a gift of heaven. That is what we are experiencing by being believers in Christ. We have the kingdom that we are waiting for the consummation of heaven. We need to be warned. It is not by your righteousness by which you will inherit salvation. You have to get that. And you might not say, well, of course it's not by my righteousness. You, You say it's by faith. But why did you believe? And so Paul even goes further, and he says, by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is the gift of God. Not on account of works that no one may boast. Even you receiving this gift of heaven by faith is not your own doing. You didn't do it. You say, well, I believed. Well, no, actually, yes, you did, but that was a gift. You, you can just trace that all back. Why did you believe in someone didn't? Was it because you were raised in a Christian home? Who put you in that home? Who created you to live in this place and not another? Who created you to not live on the deserted island where they didn't have the gospel witness? You get what I'm saying? That's what this is about. It's puncturing the pride, bringing you down to always recognize that when God does something for us, it is a gift. That's why the Apostle Paul, the most hardest-working, most faithful, fruitful Christian of all time, said it is, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So this should bring about humility. It's what we should be characterized as. It's ugly if you're self-righteous as a Christian. But it's also very dangerous because in Jesus' time, There were some people who thought they were righteous. And they questioned why Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus, in his wisdom, said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What he was saying to them is, you need to understand that you're sick. And if you don't acknowledge your sickness, you're not going to seek a physician. So that's where it begins. I have no righteousness. I need an alien righteousness, which Paul goes on to say in Philippians 3, that I might be found not with a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So this chapter continues on, chapter 10, uh, with showing the only reason they actually are at this point even alive and then going to be entering into the land is not because of their righteousness, it's from something else. And so we go to their second point, know your mediator. Why were they spared? Because God has established a principle that he will hear the intercessions, the prayers, of a faithful mediator. And so we see in verse 25, Moses, in his great humility and his awesomeness at this moment, verse 25, So I lay prostrate before the Lord. This is after they failed with the golden calf. These 40 days and 40 nights, which it says he he didn't eat or drink during this time. He laid prostrate because the Lord said he would destroy you. And I pray to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them. He has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. They are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. This is amazing. Moses is concerned they're going to be destroyed. And these are the people who have been irritating him also. And he says, no, 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 don't do that. And he's concerned about God's reputation. God hears his prayer in verse 1 of chapter 10. At that time, the Lord said to me, cup for yourself. Two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood. Make two more stones. Here we go. We're moving on. He says in verse 11, Arise, go on your journey at the head of the people so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to the fathers to give them. He will hear the prayers of an intercessor, primarily of a representative, a mediator. Which all this points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, who at his hour, when he knew his people had sinned and he was going to now pay their penalty, what does he say? Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He's concerned for the glory of God, that the glory that God would get in forgiving his people. And this glory drove him to the cross where he would take the penalty due for our sins, which we know is the curse, condemnation, hell forever. He took the judgment that was ours, so that we might have forgiveness. And so Romans 8 says very clearly, who is to condemn now? If Christ, who died and was raised, is the basis of your justification, who can can bring a charge against you? In fact, it even says that he is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. As Hebrews 7 says, he always lives to make intercession for them. So, know your heart. You are inherently unrighteous. You have no standing before God on your own. But based on the fact that God receives the intercessions and the faithfulness of a mediator, you have a right standing before him, and from that position of grace and stability. Third, the third essential, we must understand, is to know your requirements. This is in verse 12 of chapter 10. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today, for your good? God has been so gracious and patient. He's giving you the land. He's bringing you. What does the Lord require of you? In fact, this should be the posture of all of us who know the Lord. What does he require of me? Not so that I might somehow climb the mountain of works to attain his favor, but because I already have his favor, what might I do to please him? And this is the exact posture that Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What might I do? That is the posture of Christian and that's what he wants Israel to be like and he's going to go on and give them reasons more reasons more motivations for why you should do this look what he says in verse 14 behold to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens the earth with all that is in it he's the creator the owner the sustainer of all things he needs nothing self-existent And yet, what does it say in verse 15? Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. This God who needs nothing shares himself with a people who are rebellious and sinful and blesses them. And he goes more on the perfections of God in verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. There is no other. He is completely holy. And look what he says. He's not partial. He takes no bribe. He's good. He's just. He executes justice for the fatherless, the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Verse 21, he is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. This God is so amazing. Why won't you now live for him? Give him your all. There's no reason you wouldn't live for this God and love him and serve him and obey him. But right in the middle of this section, in verse 16, Look what he says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. It's as if to say, this is what the Lord requires of you, but if you're going to actually be able to do that, something must happen internally. You've got a heart issue, you need to circumcise your heart. So he's speaking figuratively here because we know what circumcision is. It's the remover of the foreskin, okay, of all the males of Israel. It was a sign of their inclusion in the people of God. That would be part of being from Abraham on through Israel or Jacob. But that was merely a symbol, and it was meant to symbolize what needed to happen on the inside, which was a heart change repentance, a new heart, okay? And that's why Paul, in the New Testament, he says over and over again, don't be trusting in your circumcision, that outward sign. Don't you realize that was nothing? It it was a symbol of what was supposed to be taking place. And so in Romans 2, he says very clearly, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. This is a matter of the heart. This is what it was all pointing to. And so the scriptures, time and time again, the Old Testament keeps saying, you need to circumcise your heart. Jeremiah 4, 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, when he's preaching after he's being persecuted and he's on trial, He says, as like a mic drop at the very end, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Something must change internally. And Paul says that is something that the Spirit does. But here's the question. Why does Moses then say, circumcise your hearts, as if they could do it? This is the dilemma, and it actually is something that has caused some controversy throughout church history. Because when we have a command here, some will argue if God commands it, that means it can be done by you. Otherwise, he wouldn't command it. You have absolute freedom to be able to fulfill that command, or otherwise he wouldn't say it. But Augustine, who is a 5th century pastor and preacher and theologian, he said something very controversial. He said in a prayer, in, in one of his writings, he said, "Command what thou will, or command what you want, God." And then he said, "And grant what thou commandest." So, command what you want, God, but help me or give me the desire to actually do it. Grant it to me. Give me permission to actually fulfill it. And one person named Pelagius said, wait wait a second, you got that all wrong. If he commanded it, that means you have the power within yourself to do it. And here's the issue, okay? The commands can be obeyed by us, but we don't want to obey them. So the inability is not a natural inability to where it's just not possible. It actually is... Our hearts are so sick and twisted that we don't want to actually do them. So when he says, circumcise your hearts, Israel is not going to do it. They're not. They're going to remain stubborn. And so he promises another day coming when, according to at the end of Deuteronomy, when he's talking about the future, he says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And this promise of a new covenant to come. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all of it is promising a new heart, a circumcision that's going to take place. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 31, I will put my law within, I'll write it on their hearts. This is all language of circumcision transformation. And so in the new covenant, Paul says very clearly, in him you also were circumcised. He's talking to Gentiles who weren't physically circumcised. He says, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. What's he talking about? The heart circumcision. That was promised. In Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, we saw it. The Spirit comes, new hearts, people are trusting in Christ, they're repenting, they're believing. Then it spreads to the Gentiles. What is being described in this circumcision of the heart through Christ is regeneration, being born again, being made alive, receiving a new heart, death to life, new creation. And so Paul goes on to say, to those who are trusting in the circumcision of the flesh, physical, outward, he says, we are the circumcision." It's like, whoa, whoa, really? Yes, we are actually the true Jews. He's talking to Jew and Gentile together. Believers in Christ are the new messianic community that has 12 apostles representing 12 tribes, a new Israel going forth. The circumcision now, who have the heart change, are Jew and Gentile together in one people, one new man. That's why you can call them the Israel of God. So the question is today, have you been circumcised in your heart? Have you been born again? Have you turned from your sins? Have you repented? Have you trusted in Christ? You recognize you don't have righteousness. You recognize you're supposed to tra- change and have a hardness of, uh, remove the hardness of heart, but you can't do it on your own. You need Christ. You need to call upon the living God in repentance. Please, don't leave today without turning to Him for grace. How does he do it? He does it through the ordinary means, through the preaching of the word, through the scriptures, reading, through the prayers. All of it comes to change hearts. It's the means God uses. So know your heart, know your mediator, know your requirements, and finally know your covenant. In chapter 11, he's going to go off on making sure they're clear as to what is required of them in the covenant itself, not commandments necessarily because he just conveyed that Love the Lord, serve Him, worship Him, command. He's going to talk about the terms, what they should expect if they don't. And that's why I've called this Mosaic covenant, oftentimes, a covenant of works. There's a law principle here that they, basically, it's do this and live. Do this and you'll be blessed. Don't do this and you will be cursed. It's not an offer of eternal life as if they had one way of salvation and it was through works. No. But their connection to this land and experiencing the blessings of what are incredible, which is being near to God, having diseases eradicated, fruitfulness, multiplying land with oil and water and fruit and cattle and everything. It's it's awesome. But I want to show you that this all depends on their faithfulness. So verse 8 of chapter 11, You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. In verse 12, it's a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Notice the emphasis upon the land here. Verse 13, if you will indeed obey my commandments, 14, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain, the later rain, that you may gather in your grain, your wine, your oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. But if you don't, he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. Verse 22, for if you be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you. You will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Verse 26, see, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. This this covenant has a particular purpose. It is going to govern the nation Israel, the kingdom of Israel. And it was going to be keeping them together as a nation in this land. But it had a bigger fulfillment, a bigger purpose. It was painting a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. The prophets, the priests, the kings the land, all of it was showcasing and teaching who this Messiah, who this promised son was ultimately going to be. And that's why Jesus, when he starts his ministry and he's talking to these Israelites, he's saying, look, you guys are searching the scriptures to find eternal life. It's they that point to me. He says, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And then in Luke chapter 24, he says, "...beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the Scriptures the things concerning himself." All of this, the law, the Old Testament was pointing in anticipation of the coming king, the Messiah. And they, Israel, was supposed to understand, because of their continued failure to keep the commandments, that they needed someone who would win for them righteousness. Righteousness. Because they were supposed to recognize that the law, far from me being able to keep it, actually reveals to me my own sinfulness. How might I be saved? And Jesus comes exactly to do that. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons but what about the curse? What about the failure? Okay, he he redeemed us from the law by his perfect life, but what about the failure? Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He became a curse for us, you see? But the Israelites who didn't receive Christ and who in Paul's day when he's preaching and ministering you know what he does? He said, they are accursed. So here's the thing. This old covenant, it was do this and live. Or if you obey, you receive blessing. If you don't obey, you receive curse. This new covenant time period now, it is if you receive Christ, you're blessed. If you don't, you're cursed. Paul says in Romans 9, verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He says, essentially, they're cursed and cut off. And if it was possible, I'd give my own life for them. If it was possible. All that's to say... Is this is the covenants we're in, okay? There's was a law principle covenant tied to the land. And it was painting forth of what Christ would come and do, which is actually satisfy the cursed, the real curse of the covenant of works that we had broken Adam to provide for us eternal life and righteousness. And so if you were to reject that, Christ, there's no satisfaction of the God's law. There's no forgiveness. And so we are here under a new covenant. A new covenant, and I want to just clarify very briefly what that means for us, being under a new covenant. This new covenant doesn't mean that those in the old covenant were saved a different way. You just have to get, get that through. Like Galatians says very clearly that the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham and that Jesus says Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he was glad. So somehow Abraham was looking forward to Jesus, okay? So everybody in the old covenant was trusting in the promise of the Son, even though they were operating within the Mosaic covenant. That's called the covenant of grace. Second, being under the new covenant doesn't mean we don't have laws. You'll hear that often from people who say, oh, we're no longer under law, we're under grace. No, there's laws Jesus says, teach them to observe all that I've commanded. And then he summarizes the Ten Commandments by saying, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So we still have law, but the difference is the Holy Spirit has circumcised our hearts, and now we love to do them. Third, the new covenant, unlike the old, you cannot be born into it. The old covenant, you if you were born in Israel, you were circumcised, you were under the old covenant. And you were in God's chosen nation. In the new covenant, you are have to be born again into it, which is only by faith in Christ. So our blessed, lovely children, we need to raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, but they're not born into it physically. They must be born spiritually. And fourth, this doesn't mean that you are under a covenant by which you should expect prosperity, no sickness, no pain or hurt. God has not promised that. That's just really important for you to get because you read the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, that was a reality for them. If they were to remain faithful, they would be in the land and blessed. Us, some of the most faithful Christians that you will ever meet or have ever lived, experience tremendous hardship, barrenness, struggles with poverty, persecution. Maybe I don't need to say that, but let's not Bind God to something He's never promised, so that when we experience trials, we actually receive what they are intended to push us towards Him and to trust in Him and long for the new heavens and new earth. So, here's what being under the new covenant does mean we have a fuller revelation of the person work of Christ. All of it comes together in this beautiful tapestry of an, a Redeemer who's the prophet, priest, and King who reveals us. To who God is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God, who for our redemption has saved us. And we possess greater promises in that Christ has already completed it. We're not under a covenant of works any longer. We rest assured, based on His intercession for us, that we are forgiven, loved, even treasured. We are God's possession his inheritance it says is, it's too much it's too much and um, we have a clear picture of the land promise that was promised to Abraham and in his physical seed and yet the New Testament says that we are heirs uh, sons of Abraham so what should we expect and turn to this land it's actually blossomed into this new heavens and new earth blessed are the meek they will inherit the earth I mean it's far greater than we ever imagined that we will reign with Christ. So those who might be looking for God to like, fulfill a promise of the physical land still could never charge God with being stingy since his promise actually blossoms into this amazing reality of new heaven and new earth. Uh, the new covenant blessing of the church community, okay? No longer are we yoked with the nation Israel, where we would have to worship with all those people who were uncircumcised of heart. Our gatherings, our church community is made up of circumcised believers who have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, who have spirits for our gift, for our encouragement and building up. And this becomes a holy temple. What a blessing to be a part of the the people of God. And this church should be a city on the hill. It should be like stars shining in the sky because of what the Holy Spirit is doing Within us. So to conclude, new covenant blessings, all this is yours, but you must be truly born again. You must repent. You must be trusting in God alone, not your own supposed righteousness. Israel was tempted to trust in their circumcision, the land, the fact that they had the scriptures. We're tempted to trust in our baptism, our church membership, our associations, our families. No, it's just in God alone who circumcised our heart, trusting Christ who has done everything for us. May that be so evident in our lives. We're humble, thankful, grateful. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that in your word, the Holy Spirit powerfully works in our midst, chiseling off pride, conforming us into the image of our Savior. We want to be humble like him. We want to consider others as more significant than ourselves. We don't want to be caught up in pride and arrogance, self-seeking, self-righteous smugness. We want to be those who are humble, recognizing that your salvation comes to us as a gift. We're undeserving. We forever will be. No matter how, how hard we work as Christians, how faithful we are, we understand very clearly what we still deserve. So we're thankful, Lord, we call you our Father who through Christ and by his spirit is adopted as his sons. It's in his name we pray, amen.